Well, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning, verses 10 through 18. We're about halfway through a sermon series that I'm calling Covered, uh, from fig leaves to robes of righteousness. We're all living in this great overarching meta-narrative, this great story that we're all living in, the central main character of which is Jesus. But we are living between fig leaves and robes of righteousness, and we started this uh, I guess, uh, exploration of scripture together uh, back when we studied the account of the fall and mankind's first attempt to cover their sin were with fig leaves and that was found to be inadequate and what God did was he took the life of some animals, it was through the shedding of blood that Adam and Eve received the first covering and we see in that a foreshadowing of the gospel truth that our covering, the covering of our sin resulted from the taking of Jesus's life. Jesus sacrificed his life so that we could have his robes of righteousness. And so we're living in between the fig leaves and the robes of righteousness. And each of our studies that we're going to focus on are a passage of scripture in between that highlights an article of clothing, something that we put on. It's kind of an interesting thing, but clothing plays a surprisingly central role in terms of the symbolism throughout the, the thread of the Bible about the story of God's plan to redeem fallen humanity. So we started with fig leaves, and then the next week we talked about sackcloth. And that naturally follows, because after the fall came all kinds of reason for mourning. We talked about the Bible's treatment of sackcloth, but how the final note, when it sounds, God will be clothing us with gladness. That's what it says in Psalm 30. And that was an exciting thing to think about. And this morning... I want to focus on Paul's counsel in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, on the armor of God. And I'm aware that that is figurative in language. It's not a real article of clothing. So maybe I'm cheating a little bit, but that's just how it's going to be. That's okay. In my experience, though, the armor of God passage, when it is taught, is normally broken out into a number of different messages uh, we could really, this could really swell into a couple months worth of messages where we highlight each of the different parts of the armor. Uh, but this morning, we're going to take in the passage from 30,000 feet, as it were. We will spend just a little time with each piece of the armor, but the thing we want to talk about, talk, to walk out of here this morning, having seen and appreciated together, is simply this truth. The strength is the Lord's. The armor is from the Lord, but we have to put it on. Uh, this is the truth I want you to hold together in your mind. God has provided for us something which we could not have made ourselves. He has provided us with strength and armor, but still, you have to put it on. That's the command in the Bible. And these are the two things we have to hold together. Let me begin just by reading the Armor of God passage. Again, I'm in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Uh, I, I told you just a few minutes ago that um, for about 10 years, Sarah and I lived and served at Camp Maranatha in Southern California, way up in the San Jacinto Mountains above Palm Springs, beautiful country up there, and uh, served on a 26-acre campground up there in the mountains. Beautiful setting. I actually filmed Ponderosa, not far from there down in Garner Valley. So if you, if you ever watched Ponderosa as a kid, that's the kind of, that's what it looked like, more or less. It was really pretty country. And about 100 yards, well, within 100 yards of my house, one morning I got up, I went for a walk, and it had rained the night before, and there in the mud behind a camper's cabin, less than 100 yards from my house, were some enormous tracks, maybe about the size of a CD, maybe a little bigger than that. And I thought to myself, I think those are mountain lion tracks. There were no claws at the end of the, the digits. And we had a camp arriving that day. It was a retreat coming up. So I, I, called, I went to the office and I called Fish and Game. And they sent out a Fish and Game officer and they said, yeah, absolutely, those are mountain lion tracks. And I said, really? This close? And they said, oh yeah, for sure. And I said, should I be worried? And he said, and I'll never forget it, his look kind of, look kind of, face looked kind of startled and he said, you should have always been worried. <laughs> his, his point was, this animal didn't just show up yesterday. This is not a new presence in the neighborhood. You idiot. These things have been living here always. You should have always been worried. And I, that was a very interesting moment for me. And the reason why I tell that story is because right here at the beginning of the Armor of God passage... Paul wants you to know that there is a very real enemy. And the Bible describes him as, an, as a lion wandering about looking for someone to devour. And I, I get the sense that I think a lot of Christians just kind of lackadaisically go through their days not mindful of the fact that there really is something dangerous that's lurking out there and is thinking much more about them than they are about it, its presence. Should you be worried that there's such a thing as Satan? Yeah, we should have always been, absolutely. Scripture refers to Satan as the anointed cherub, the ruler of the demons, the god of this world. And earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul describes him as the prince of the power of the air. Scripture depicts him opposing God's work, perverting God's word, hindering God's servants, obscuring the gospel, snaring the righteous, holding the world in his power, a roaring lion looking, seeking someone to devour. And according to Jesus in John 10.10, 10, his mission, 
is to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he's all about. And the Bible wants to fill us this morning with a healthy respect for the power of that enemy who is operating out of you in the unseen realm, because if we underestimate the power of our enemy, we, will, we won't feel the pressing, urgent need to put on the armor. And we might even make the critical mistake of trying to face him in our own strength. Uh, Colonel Teddy Roosevelt, before he was president, one day he had some guests over to his house. He had a dog in his front yard and another dog started to fight the dog and his dog took a horrible thrashing. It was mauled, really. And his guest said, uh, Teddy, your dog isn't much of a fighter. And he says, no, he's a good fighter. He's just not a good judge of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> And I think a lot of, and I think the reason why Paul, before talking about the armor of God, invokes the reality of the enemy that we're up against is because sometimes we're not a good judge of that. Sometimes we're just kind of, again, apathetically, lackadaisically living our Christian life without much discipline or any sense of an awareness that there is a real, not figurative, but real enemy. So in Paul's ex exhortation, he knows we will be mauled if we fail to size up our adversary correctly. So in between Paul's exhortation to put on the full armor of God in verses 10 and 11 and, the, and itemizing those pieces of armor in verses 14 through 17, he gives us this full and frightening description of those forces that are arrayed against God's people. He says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Uh, real quick, we need to move on, but I just want to point out three things in Paul's description of the enemy. One, he speaks of power. This is a powerful enemy. We see that, for example, when he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, he's saying, our struggle is not against somebody in our weight class. <laughs> this is against something else. But it's against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And power is bad enough, but really power is neutral, right? It's like a gun can be used to rob a bank or protect a bank. A gun in itself is an inanimate object. Power is something similar. It can be used rightly or wrongly. And so Paul adds to this description of the enemy as powerful the fact that the enemy is also wicked. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He wants you to know that this force is not only powerful, far more powerful than we are, but it is wicked, evil, top to bottom. But then I think the third statement he makes about the enemy that I find personally most disturbing is the idea of him as a schemer. I'll explain why. Um, I'm not particularly scared of sharks because I don't live in the ocean. <laughs> I, I live here in northern Maine and it just doesn't worry me. That I, sharks are terrifying, I suppose, but kind of in the abstract. They're out there somewhere. It's kind of like mountain lions. I don't mind that mountain lions exist. But when they're in my yard, I kind of want them to be extinct, right? I, everybody's an animal rights activist until that thing's about to eat their kid. 
And then you can just, let's get rid of them all. That's what I say. And so here, when I hear this word, when I hear powerful and wicked, I go, okay, but that's out there, right? But then the word schemes kind of brings it home a little bit. And I'll explain why. The Greek word here translated as schemes, or sometimes translated as wiles, is most properly understood perhaps as stratagems. In other words, Satan is an enemy who is thoughtful. He lays plans. He's creative. He's disciplined and patient about seeing them through to completion. He's studying you. When I compare that to the undisciplined, unintentional, and frankly lazy way that I, Josh Tate, sometimes approaches the Christian life, it's a terrifying thought that while I'm snoozing at the wheel, there's somebody else who's far more disciplined, a schemer, a strategist. Time spent in the word is hit and miss. Prayers are offered in moments of crisis, but the discipline is quickly forgotten again when things are going well. The armor is laid aside or is only partly on, sloppy, undisciplined, unaware that the enemy is at the very gates howling for blood. Sometimes Satan will attack from the shadows like an ambush predator, but at other times he comes masquerading as an angel of light a wolf disguised as a sheep, and we're caught off guard. Sometimes he comes roaring like a lion, and sometimes he comes quietly like a snake in the grass. We must not assume, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are his only or even his most common weapons. He sometimes prefers to seduce us into compromise, deceive us into errors, draw us into conflict with one another or discrediting people who are serving in the church. He plays both the bully and the beguiler. Force and fraud are his tools. And he's very intentional about it. And what Paul is encouraging toward us is, living, is to live a life of intentionality and discipline. Put on the full armor of God. Sleep with your boots on, is what he's saying. Let's go through the different arm, uh, bits of the armor of God, and then I, I, I want to come back to that large summary point I want us to walk away with here. The first thing that Paul talks about is the belt of truth. The word translated in most Bibles as truth could also be translated as truthfulness or sincerity. And this appears to be what Paul is getting at. What the belt of truth signifies is a genuine and sincere commitment to the cause of the gospel. By saying, put on the belt of truth, Paul is telling us to be, to be real, to be the real deal, mean it. Not to be a faker, a pretender, a play actor, not somebody for whom the God and the things of God are a spiritual accessory that we take on and put on and take off as it suits us. Wearing one face on Sunday morning and another on Monday. God requires truth in the inward being, and the Christian must be honest and truthful, for if we have not buckled on the belt of truth, and we are talking up a big game on Sunday, and play acting to impress one another here, then we are dressed not in the belt of truth, but in the devil's 
costume of deceit, hypocrisy, and pride. I think this is the idea here. Paul starts with the belt of truth because several other pieces of the armor actually attach to our sincerity. And, and it's going to be very important that we start with um, a true beginning as a sincere person about these things. If we begin with a desire to put on a good show, if we begin with a desire to appear a certain way to certain people, you will never put on the other pieces not truly. The belt has to begin with a true embrace of the gospel truth that Jesus has done for us, certain things we could never, never have done for ourselves, and that now you are sincerely seeking to become like the God who saved you. Our English word, not the Greek word we find in the Bible, but our English word for hypocrite comes from a Greek word meaning play actor or somebody who wears a mask. And this morning, if we're not wearing the belt of truth, then we are probably wearing a mask. This is, I think, the place we have to first understand this this morning. Next comes the breastplate of righteousness. And I think that a full understanding of what is meant here by Paul when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness comes when we combine two main ideas. This breastplate of righteousness is both representative of the perfect righteousness of Christ, and it is a sincere but imperfect process of pursuing personal righteousness ourselves. So the thing that is over our heart is not only the perfect righteousness of Christ. We're protected by that. But it's also a sincere, growing desire to become like Jesus, to love righteousness personally. In Christianity, the two kind of big $5 words, we talk about them a lot, are justification and sanctification. Justification is a once-for-all event. It's a transaction, and it happens in a moment, and when it's done, you're done being justified. It happens all together, all at once. And what the justification is, is that we're made right with God the Father because of what Jesus did for us. All of his righteousness is transferred to our account, and it's instantaneous. But then the Bible says that everyone who has truly embraced justification, everyone who has truly embraced the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, put their trust in him, what follows on the heels of that, we get the Holy Spirit in us, and we begin the process of sanctification. Now, sanctification is different from justification because justification is that event, once for all. Sanctification is a process that begins. It's a, the process by which we become more and more like Jesus over time. And there is nobody who is justified who does not go on to in, to, in the process of sanctification. Uh, there is nobody who's embraced the gospel who does not have a love for righteousness. But now all these things I'm, we follow very imperfectly, perhaps, but sincerely. Again, the belt of truth, very important. And the breastplate of righteousness is tied right off directly to that belt of truth. It has to be. Uh, when I was a police officer, when we were training um, with our firearms, which story for another day, I was a terrible shot, still am, could not hit the broad side of a bar, it was terrible, um, but they taught us to shoot just center mass, like, they said, forget everything you've seen in the movies, you're not trying to hit anybody in weird places, you just shoot for the biggest possible target, right center mass, and they explained, this is kind of ugly and graphic, I apologize for that, but 
Uh, right here in a, a box in the human body, you have the circulatory system in the heart, you have the respiratory system, you have the central nervous system. Uh, this is center mass in a human being, and it's most likely to incapacitate a human being. And by talking about the breastplate of righteousness, this is arguably, perhaps, one of the most important items of armor you have, because it is protecting that from which life flows, the heart. It's right over the, that, that center mass area, spiritually as well as physically. And these two things are important to hold together, that the breastplate of righteousness is the perfect righteousness of Christ and our own stumbling but sincere efforts to embrace righteousness, to love righteousness, to pursue it personally. We have to hold these two things together because here's what happens. When we blow it as we will, when we slip up, surrender to temptation and sin, sometimes sinning in epic fashion, Satan will come and remind us of our failings and bring accusations and slander aimed center mass right at our hearts. And if your understanding of the breastplate of righteousness was that it was a piece of armor made up of your good works, Satan would say, your breastplate is cracked and I'm going to get one right through it. Because it would be cracked. <laughs> if I had a breastplate made out of my righteousness, oh my goodness, it would be pretty imperfect. But when he comes at me with that accusation, we just remind him of God's promise to us in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm wearing the righteousness of Christ. The missile ricochets harmlessly away. But it's also true that we're commanded to put on the armor and walk in it as children of light. And as we grow in personal righteousness and seek more and more to live lives worthy of our calling, then we will be able to better resist temptation. Just like any other discipline, we will become stronger through regular exercise and practice. So it's both. All right, next piece. Paul goes on and he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Uh, John MacArthur points out helpfully, he says, Roman soldiers wore sandals with hobnails sticking out of the bottom, not unlike cleats, and this would allow them to stand their ground firmly, and we see that the shoes that cause us to stand against Satan are really made of the gospel of peace, that is the good news that we're at peace with God, and he's on our side, and we can stand confidently in his resources. Uh, I'd only disagree with him on one point here. Uh, John MacArthur is a greater Bible teacher than me, perhaps, but Johnny Mac, if you're listening, here's my piece of correction. <laughs> he says, he's, I like what he says here, but he, when talking about the gospel of peace, actually what Paul says to put on is the readiness of the gospel of peace. Isn't that interesting? He's not actually saying put on the gospel of peace. He's saying put on, shod with the readiness that comes from that. Um, now, in my Bible, next to Ephesians 6.15, I've written a reference to Peter, 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the word here for prepared in the 1 Peter passage 
as in always be prepared, is a very close relative to the hetoi masia. Are there any Greeks in the audience today? Oh, good. <laughs> One of these times that's going to backfire and they're going to be like, yes, I'm right here. I'm like, oh, no. So these two words are very closely related. They're, uh, it's, they're very similar. And they mean essentially the same thing. Always be ready, says Peter. Put on the readiness, says Paul. Go forth and make disciples. I think perhaps the sandals might mean what keep you from being swept off your feet. That's possible. But I think also that's what you march upon. That's what, you know, we've all been given the great commission to go. And he's saying, be shed, uh, have your feet shod with the readiness. That's interesting. Readiness for what? I say readiness to go and share the good news of the victory that Jesus has won on behalf of all those who would embrace it. These are our marching orders. Then he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the, dev of the evil one. How does faith act as a shield against the fiery darts of temptation? I'll show you. Uh, we find a really wonderful illustration of this in the first sin. Remember when we talked about the, uh, the fig leaves and all of that? In the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfect peace with God and with each other and with creation. But along came Satan, disguised as a certain, and he shot one humdinger of a fiery dart at first Eve and then Adam. He said, did God really tell you? that if you ate of the tree, you would die. You will not die. And then he goes on. And basically, every time we are tempted to sin, Satan is saving, saying, believe me, not God. And the only defense against such an attack is to believe, believe in God, to have faith. So he says here, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith, believe in God's promises. What was the fiery dart he threw at Abraham in the Old Testament? Do you really think at Sarah's age that God will give you a son like he promised? Not likely. Here's Hagar. Have a child with her. God's not going to come through, so you've got to make something happen. That was a fiery dart that he threw into Abraham's mind, and the way to have put that out would have been the shield of faith, to say, no, 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 God promised, as unlikely as it sounds, that the child of promise would come through Sarah. And what were the fiery darts that Satan threw at Jesus? After 40 days of fasting, he said, turn these stones into bread. Throw yourself off the temple. I'll give you all the nations of the world. God said he would take care of you. God said he would sustain you. What's going on? He's abandoned you. Turn these rocks into bread. You have to take care of yourself, Jesus. Didn't God say that every knee will bow and people would be gathered to you from all the nations of the earth? How's that going for you, Jesus? And how did Jesus answer him? Well, in each instance, what Jesus did when Satan came and said, did God really say, Satan answered with the shield of faith. He quoted scripture. And he invites us to do the same thing here. We uh, take up God's word and believe in his promises, 
not believing the lie. And every temptation to sin is a temptation to believe a lie. The helmet of salvation. That's the next one. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul again, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls on the church in Thessalonica to wear the hope of salvation as a helmet. And in English, our word hope is a weak sort of word. To us English speaker, the word hope speaks of uncertainty. Is your team going to win this weekend? I hope so. That's kind of a feeble sort of a word. It's if I, in a perfect world, maybe. (laughs) Is your friend in the hospital going to pull through? Boy, I sure hope so. But the word here in the Bible for hope is not as weak as our English word hope. It means really a confident expectation. The word in Greek is elpis. Elpis does not mean hope in the maybe, maybe not, I hope so sense. It means confident expectation. So what Paul is saying is for a helmet, put on the confident expectation of salvation. Wear that right over your dome. (laughs) Let that confident expectation of salvation guard your mind. And there are many things on which this hinges. It's very important to put on that confident expectation of a coming day when there will be reward and wrath, pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. How can we be so confident? Because our God never lies. He never fails. He never comes up short as, well, he's the one who's promised it. The same God who spoke the world into being out of nothing, who is mighty to save, and who calls us his very children by adoption through Christ, has made some unambiguous and powerfully worded statements in the Bible, which a high concern for his glory and his very nature as the God of truth will not allow him to deny or fail to make good on. And lastly, and this is a little bit cheating because this is not an article of clothing, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every other item in the armor of of God described by Paul is for defense. This point gets made a lot if you've ever studied the armor of God. Uh, The sword, however, is not primarily a defensive item. The sword exists for only one purpose, and that is killing. Swords are for killing, just as surely as helmets and breastplates and shields are to keep you from getting killed. The sword is to the bullet what the bulletproof vest is to the bulletproof vest. (laughs) I got lost in my analogy there. To the breastplate of righteousness. Right. But it does beg the question, what are we supposed to put to death with these swords? Uh, Down through the church, we have seen a lot of folks who take the word of God and wield it against human beings. They will weaponize God's word. Especially in our culture today, we have this amazing capacity to weaponize anything against anybody. But Paul begins by saying our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Whatever we are supposed to be putting to death with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, it is not to be weaponized against others personally. Here's the thing I believe we are supposed to put to death with our swords. It's designed for killing sin in our lives. 
In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Put it to death with what? I would say with the sword of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we can conclude our brief, well, maybe our not-so-brief summary of these items in the armor by saying that we kill our sins and put to death the lies of Satan with the Spirit's sword, the word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, so there they are. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, our feet shod with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I want to, after having take, spent a little time with those this morning and having talked about our very real enemy, I want to come back to that first initial thought that we talked about. The big idea I want us to leave with here this morning. This block of scripture begins with verse 10 and ends with verse 18. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. And then in verse 18, it says, Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. So it begins by saying, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And it ends with talking about prayer. So I want you to see that this whole passage is sandwiched between two verses that call us to look to God as our source of strength, the necessary supply. But it also says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Here we have two commands standing side by side, which are a great example of the balanced teaching of Scripture. The first is be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And the second is put on the full armor of God. Be strong in him, but put it on. Some Christians are filled with such a prideful self-confidence that they think they can manage on their own without the Lord's strength and his armor. Uh, I've known a lot of, I have six kids myself, my family, there were five of us in the household I was growing up in, and I, without naming names, I can tell you there were some people in, I'll talk about my siblings instead of my kids, they're not here, it's safer. I have brothers who are way smarter than me. I'll say that here in front of you because they're not here. <laughs> they are. They're way smarter than me. I have one brother in particular who uh, anytime I disagree with him, I begin to really question myself because I think he's just that much smarter than me. However, I knew him when he was in high school and he was a very lazy student. Very, very lazy. Uh, he would procrastinate until the night before and then he probably still wouldn't even do the assignment. He'd somehow say, I'll get it done on the bus tomorrow. And then maybe he'd get on the bus and wouldn't do it, and he'll say, I'll just wing it when class time comes around. And he would do better than me. <laughs> That's the sad thing about it. Now, here's the thing. 
I think there are many people who take a similar approach spiritually, where they are just so filled with self-confidence. They're just so filled that when the moment arrives, I'm just going to wing it somehow, and everything is going to kind of go okay. I think there are many people who are living the spiritual life in just this sort of an attitude. I, didn't, I haven't read my Bible for weeks. I don't spend much time in prayer. I sometimes don't go to church for months at a stretch. I'm not really engaged in any of the disciplines, the, the graces that God has given me that would fortify me against the moment when it shows up. But I'll just kind of wing it when that happens, and I'm sure it'll be fine. Many people are like this. Others are so timid or so self-distrustful that they think they have no place and nothing to contribute to the spiritual conflict that surrounds them. Both are mistaken. In verses 10 and 11, Paul marries the two together by proclaiming that the Lord is the divine and miraculous source of our strength. He is the provider of our armor while simultaneously commanding us to lay hold of it, take it up and put it on. He doesn't say, go out and make yourself a breastplate of righteousness. He says, take the breastplate provided and put it on. The power is indeed the Lord's, and without the strength of his might, we would falter and fall, but at the same time, we are called to operate in that strength and in the power that he has made available. So the command here to be strong is not saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or man up, or something like that. It's saying find your strength in the Lord and then move obediently to put him on, to wear him and his promises and his word like a protective armor. The armor is made available through the Holy Spirit to all who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation. But we are left still with the responsibility to put it on and to put all of it on and keep it on. For if any part is left naked and exposed, that is where the schemer, the enemy who targets, the strategist, will come gunning for us. And this calls for a sustained, lifelong discipline in these areas. Now, if you're like me, uh, sometimes in my study, and I'll close with this thought, I'll, I'll be preaching a sermon like this, and I'll just go, God, I am such a hypocrite on this topic you can't possibly expect me to stand up in front of all of those discerning, thoughtful people and talk like this. <laughs> like, like I've got everything together, and all you people need to get your act right. That's not the spirit with which I'm saying these things. I, I think if we could all show the state of our armor right now, it would be very, very interesting. If God, not li figuratively, but literally, what would Josh Tate's armor look like? If you could see me in it right now, what would yours look like? This would be a very interesting exercise. I wish God could help us do it right now. But luckily, that's just between you and God. I'm not here to judge you. I'm, I hope you're not judging me. I'm just saying that all of us probably are in some state of disrepair as far as our armor goes this morning. So the question is, at the end of our time, what are we going to do about it? God's word as a document is meant to be lived. I'm not just interesting this morning in putting an interesting thought in front of you. 
really the question we should all walk out of here with is what are we going to do about it? I don't know. Read back through this passage, or maybe over the course of our time spent in this passage this morning, maybe God has highlighted one or two of these areas that you're just really not operating in. Verse 18 talks all about prayer as a necessary thing. It's like the walkie-talkie. You know, I, I often think, you know, Paul, when he wrote the Armor of God passage, was under house arrest. He would have been guarded by an actual physical soldier who would have been wearing these items. And I imagine him as he's writing, looking at the armor and writing this out this way. Maybe that's how it happened. I don't know. But Roman soldiers had no walkie-talkies. They had no thing on their shoulder that they could call into the proconsul or whoever. That didn't exist. So rather than having that as an armor, I think if it had been a police officer standing there, that probably would have been, oh, and, oh yeah, the walkie-talkie. Let's talk about prayer. I don't know. That didn't happen. So he finishes with verse 18. Maybe your prayer life is a complete hit or miss shambles this morning. I don't know. Maybe have you thought about maybe something I should do in response to what I've heard in God's word. God, I believe in the reality of the enemy. I believe in the power of prayer. But I don't often act on that belief in the way that I should. Or maybe when we talk about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Maybe your discipline in the Word of God is pretty woeful. I know certainly I've gone through seasons where it has not been consistent, and I've gone through seasons where it was pretty much non-existent for a time. I'll confess that that does happen from time to time. Right now, I'm having a great time in my devotional life. I'm spending time in a couple books, but that's not always true for me. And so maybe right now you're in this season where this is a reminder from God, a prompting to take that sword up and clean it off. It's a little rusty. <laughs> you got to sharpen that thing. Or maybe when it talks about the breastplate of righteousness, maybe God is bringing to your mind through the Holy Spirit right now some area of sin in your life. And he's been talking to you about it. You've been doing the na, 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 na thing. And maybe now it's time to deal with him squarely about that, to repent. To not only rest in the perfect righteousness of Christ, but to also um, respond to that in an appropriate way by loving righteousness personally and trying to put that to death with the sword of the Spirit. There are many different ways, but I encourage you not to let this just die on the vine, uh, but to give some thought about what we might do in response to this this week. Let me pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, you are good. And God, I am so glad that we have a shepherd who watches over us and in whose power and might we can rest. Father, I thank you for the many times, I, the vast, vast majority of them I'm not even aware of, when you have protected the sleepy sheep who was not, it was not very well, not doing the things I should do to protect myself. God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for being an incredible shepherd God. And Father, this whole talk about the armor of God, the armor does not exist because you are somehow lacking or absent as a shepherd, but because one of the ways that you shepherd us towards what is most excellent and satisfying and good is to put these things on. 
Father, the armor is not proof that the shepherd is inadequate. It is that the shepherd is wise in the way that you provide what is needed for us and what is best for us. And so, Father, we rest in your superior wisdom. We thank you, Lord, for providing these things for us, that we do have all these pieces of armor that are necessary. And, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning and gathered with us online, that you would bring to mind those pieces of the armor which we personally should put on this week. And uh, Father, just pray for your help by the Holy Spirit in doing that. Uh, We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for your word. Father, help us as we go out from here to live for you in the midst of these days as we await the promised day when Jesus returns. In Jesus' name, amen.